I'm Elijah Blumoff, and you're listening to Versecraft, a podcast about the art of poetry seen through the craft of particular poems. In each episode, I recite an exceptional piece of verse, then analyze its overall form, and follow with a sentence-by-sentence exploration of the content of the poem. To aid in understanding, you can follow along with the text of each poem included in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Ohio Poetry Association. I'd like to start the podcast today with some exciting news. Versecraft has been picked up by the Ohio Poetry Association and will now feature on their website and in their publications and social media. I'm incredibly grateful to the staff of the OPA for their support and greatly look forward to working with them. The OPA is a wonderful organization whose goal is, as they say, to promote poets, the art of poetry, and those it touches. You can check them out at ohiopoetryassn.org. It seems like I'm getting into the habit of starting each episode with some clarifying comments on the previous episode. As the show goes on, I hope fewer of these comments will be necessary, but when they come up, I think it's important to address them, no matter how seemingly trivial they are. I'd like to address something I just briefly mentioned last time. Namely, that one of the hallmarks of Milton's style is his use of anapastic substitutions in his iambic lines. Now, I'm not going back on this claim. I think it's true. But it is important to note that Milton himself probably wouldn't have agreed with me. That's because the way Milton read his lines is different from how most of us read them today. In the 17th century, when Milton was writing, it was very common for poets to elide syllables together in order to make them fit the meter. We still elide syllables in today's English, but only for a set number of acceptable contractions, like it's instead of it is, or hasn't instead of has not. Poets of the English Renaissance used elision much more freely often even in words where the elision wasn't marked by an apostrophe. Two examples of these invisible elisions are Y-glides and W-glides. For instance, in order to make the word radiance fit into an iambic line, a poet might turn this three-syllable word into a two-syllable word by alighting the I-A into a Y sound, radiance instead of radiance. It would still be the same word on the page, but the assumption made by the poet and the poet's contemporaries is that it would be pronounced differently to match the meter. Or take a word like usual. A poet might turn this from a three-syllable word into a two-syllable word, alighting the U-A into a W sound, usual, instead of usual. Because of these kinds of implicit elisions, what often looks like a three-syllable anapestic or dactylic substitution on the page is actually meant to be read as an elided two-syllable foot. Milton makes very frequent use of such elisions in his work, and so to us, it looks like he makes use of many anapestic substitutions. Now, just like performers don't always play Bach the way Bach would have played himself, I don't think it's necessary for everyone who recites Milton's work to recite it the way Milton himself would have done. Personally, I prefer to read Milton's work with anapests instead of elisions. I think it sounds more dynamic and dramatic. Furthermore, sonically speaking, elisions like Y-glides and W-glides are never entirely successful. No matter how hard you try to hide it, if a word naturally has three syllables in it, people familiar with the language will always hear the the shadow of the hidden syllable. Therefore, I think it is appropriate, especially for modern audiences, to speak of anapestic substitutions as characteristic of Milton's style. Now that I've spent exactly 500 words talking about this minor detail that probably none of you care about, let's get to our poem for today. Our poem is Hap by Thomas Hardy. Hardy, who lived from 1840 to 1928, is a very interesting figure in English literature for at least a couple of reasons. 
The first is that he is probably the only English writer who is equally known for his fiction and his poetry. First gaining fame as the author of 19th century Victorian novels like Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Far From the Madding Crowd, Hardy, who had written poems throughout his life, devoted himself exclusively to a poetic career at the beginning of the 20th century. This leads to our second point. Hardy, more than any other figure in English literature, represents the artistic bridge from the Victorian to the modern sensibility. His work in both poetry and prose lies at the intersection of traditionalism and experimentation, nature-loving romanticism, and cynical existential pessimism. In American poetry, the comparable transitional figures would be E.A. Robinson and Robert Frost. Today's poem, written comparatively early in Hardy's career, is a fabulous example of this fascinating historical tension. It is a traditional sonnet, but with some interesting metrical and formal quirks. It is a poem which uses traditional Victorian diction, but the topic is the chaotic godlessness of the universe, discussed in a way which seems to anticipate the aleatory quality of quantum mechanics. Before we get into the poem, some of you may be wondering what on earth hap means. Simply put, it means chance or luck. It's not a word used much nowadays, but it's the root of the word happen, as in the phrase, it just so happens, or by happenstance. Hardy is telling us off the bat that this will be a poem which addresses the concept of arbitrariness. The poem goes like this. Hap. If but some vengeful god would call to me from up the sky and laugh, Thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy that thy love's loss is my hate's profiting. Then would I bear it, clench myself, and die, steeled by the sense of ire unmerited, half-eased in that a powerfuller than I had willed and meted me the tears I shed. But not so. How arrives it joy lies slain, and why unblooms the best hope ever sown? Crass casualty obstructs the sun and rain, and dicing time for gladness casts a moan. These purblind doomsters had as readily strown blisses about my pilgrimage as pain. This is clearly a sonnet, but the organization of stanzas and rhymes is slightly unusual. The first two quatrains, which follow an alternating rhyme scheme in iambic pentameter, set us up for this to be an orthodox English sonnet. However, we are then faced not with a third quatrain and couplet, as we would expect, but a sestet, a group of six lines, with the rhyme scheme E-F-E-F-F-E. This grouping and rhyme scheme are typical not of an English sonnet, but an Italian one, or what is called a Petrarchan sonnet, which makes do with fewer rhyme sounds than an English sonnet, and is typically grouped into an octet and a sestet. Because this poem is half English and half Italian in shape, we can think of it as a hybrid sonnet form. I suspect that Hardy chose this form because it most closely mirrors the thought process the poem plays out. Unlike in an English sonnet, Hardy is not unfolding an argument in three steps, followed by a twist or conclusion. Instead, he is proposing a hypothetical situation, his response to it, and then uses the larger space of the sestet to meditate on the actual state of things. Metrically speaking, the poem is pretty regular but there are a few metrical and rhythmic oddities which point to Hardy's fledgling appetite for experimentation. I will discuss these as they appear in our forthcoming analysis. Let's begin with the first quatrain. 
If but some vengeful god would call to me from up the sky and laugh, Thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profiting. Hardy begins by imagining a terrifying revelation. A deity makes itself known to him and reveals that the reason his life is so full of suffering, sadness, and disappointment is because it brings pleasure to this sadistic higher power. One is reminded of Gloucester's line in King Lear, As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. Unlike in the book of Job, God does not come out of the whirlwind to inform his victim that his suffering does not require an explanation. This horrific deity is actually much more generous and perfectly willing to explain its actions. To my mind, the most interesting line in this stanza is, Know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy. This could simply mean that the god takes pleasure in Hardy's sorrow, but it could also hint at deeper and even more disturbing metaphysical claims. The word ecstasy comes from the Greek word ekstasis, which means to stand outside oneself. In Greek mysticism, it refers to the annihilation of the ego, breaking through the boundaries of the self to participate in the life of a higher being. Equipped with this meaning, we could extend the god's confession to mean a couple of things. It might mean that human suffering is a way that this god is able to commune with an even higher power, the god beyond the god, and that, just as humans humans sacrifice animals in religious rituals, we are sacrificed by this greater consciousness for his own spiritual elevation. Or, even more shockingly, it could mean that our sorrow, which is to say our lives, our experiences, are actually the experiences of a god who is experiencing life outside itself. We are the incarnations of a god who enjoys making himself suffer in human form. In this case, the god is not only a sadist, but a masochist. Let's look briefly at the meter here. Overall, it's quite regular, though it's worth remarking that lines 1 and 3 begin with trochaic substitutions. These are not particularly strong trochies, and could easily be read as iams by someone not paying attention. We know that they're trochies, though, because of the sense of what is being said. In line 1, we place the emphasis on if, because Hardy's point hinges on the conditionality of the statement. In line 3, we place the emphasis on no, not only because it takes grammatical precedence over that, but because the god is trying to relate knowledge to Hardy. Someone eager to identify substitutions might also mistakenly read two heavy feet in line 4, loves loss and hates prof, as spondees instead of iams. This is incorrect, however, not only because the second syllables in these feet actually do receive slightly more stress than the first syllables, but because reading either or both of these feet as spondees would unnecessarily destroy the integrity of the pentameter line. We would end up with six or even seven metrical accents. Given the regularity of the poem, it is highly unlikely Hardy would change the meter just for this line. These are not spondees, but heavy iams, a rhythmic rather than a metrical variation. Let's begin the poem again and move on through the second quatrain. If but some vengeful god would call to me from up the sky and laugh, thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profiting. Then would I bear it, clench myself and die, steeled by the sense of ire unmerited half-eased in that a powerfuller than I had willed and meted me the tears I shed. 
Having described the terrifying hypothetical situation of a sadistic god's visitation, Hardy claims that were this to occur, it would actually bring him comfort. He would not physically suffer any less, of course, but the knowledge that his suffering had a rational explanation would make his sorrows easier to bear. He would be half-eased. Moreover, Hardy would be comforted, like Satan in Paradise Lost, by the idea that he is morally superior to his god. Hardy is making the somewhat shocking claim that a hostile god would be better than no god at all. The worst kind of suffering is meaningless suffering. As an astute listener might have predicted, the word that stands out most to me in this stanza is meted. Hardy speaks of the god meeting the tears he sheds, that is, measuring out and dispensing them as a punishment. Meeting, of course, is nearly the same word as meter, which also refers to measurement, not only in poetry and music, but in words like thermometer and barometer. It is interesting to observe that Hardy speaks of his tears being meted in meter itself, and presumably he is writing this poem, this meter, because of the sorrow that has been meted out to him. The artistic process is one of organizing and measuring our response to the organization and measurement of our human condition. I want to talk about line five for a moment. Then would I bear it, clench myself, and die. Because it's very interesting metrically, and is a good example of how people can differ in how they scan a line. If you wanted to go for the most vanilla interpretation of this line, you could read it simply as a trochee, followed by four iams. Because of the quantity and placement of the commas, though, I don't think that this interpretation is the most accurate phrasing we can produce. We have to get weirder. Now, some metrists might accuse the following interpretation of being too trigger-happy on the metrical substitutions, but I think, in this case, the punctuation supports me. I would read this line as trochi, amphibrac, cretic, I am. A cretic is a foot which is the inverse of an amphibrac. Instead of ba-bum-bum, it goes bum-ba-bum. The line would thus read, then would I bear it, clench myself, and die. And this is exactly how the commas tell us to read it. If you read the line quickly, the trochee-headed iambic analysis works fine, and this might even be how Hardy thought of it as he was writing. If you pay close attention to the phrasing, however, the second interpretation is more exact, at the acknowledged risk of making Hardy, like Milton earlier, seem more metrically radical than he intends to be. Let's begin the poem again, and this time read all the way through. If but some vengeful god would call to me from up the sky and laugh, thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profiting. Then would I bear it, clench myself and die, steeled by the sense of ire unmerited, half eased in that a powerfuller than I had willed and meted me the tears I shed. But not so. How arrives it joy lies slain, and why unblooms the best hope ever sown? Crass casualty obstructs the sun and rain, and dicing time for gladness casts a moan. These purblind doomsters had as readily strown blisses about my pilgrimage as pain. In this final sestet, we are reminded that the reality of life is far worse than a hostile god. Everyone and everything is the victim of blind chance. No doubt we could challenge Hardy on both of these points. If chance means that we can be lucky as well as unlucky, 
Isn't this preferable to a God who guarantees that we will always suffer? Furthermore, is it truly so clear that life is dictated by blind chance? Even the actions of unpredictable quanta are subject to physical laws and probabilities. Newtonian and Einsteinian certainties emerge from quantum activity, and chaos theory shows us that even the most unpredictable events follow, in the long run, predictable patterns. In this complex world we live in, chaos and order fold in upon each other like fractals, and it is difficult to tell where one ends and the other begins. Every pattern of order turns out to originate from some entirely unknowable process, and every perception of chaos turns out to consist of a pattern of order we simply haven't yet recognized. I have often thought that if we strip the viewpoints of all doctrine, the one essential difference between a theist and an atheist is that the former believes that the world is fundamentally ordered, the latter that the world is fundamentally chaotic. I suspect that the true answer to the mystery of existence lies somewhere beyond the categories we have created for it. The world is because it is, and this because, this causality, is both essential and, from our limited mortal perspective, circular and arbitrary. The fact that humans hunger so deeply for order and meaning, however, indicates that the universe itself hungers for order and meaning. We are the world alive to itself, and by looking at our own nature, we can perhaps discover something about the nature of all things. But I've gotten way off track here. Regardless of whether we agree with Hardy or not, this poem has value because it vividly portrays the tragedy that life would be if we were to see it from Hardy's point of view, and many people do. Casualty, that is, freak accident, obstructs the sun when we desire light, and obstructs the rain when we desire water. Time, which dices both because it plays a game of chance with our lives and because it slices and destroys everything in its path, gives us horrible grief for no reason. These forces which dictate our lives are crass and purblind. That is, they are completely thoughtless about what they do and blind to consequences. Doomsters is an odd word, but Hardy uses it both to mean those who bring destruction and those who judge. Doom originally meant judgment, and our association of this word with utter destruction is due to our association of doom with the Christian last judgment. Look at who is judging us, destroying us, Hardy says. Blind and thoughtless forces. Hardy would agree with Macbeth when the Scottish tyrant says that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. For Hardy, the final anguish is that these forces had as readily strewn blisses about my pilgrimage as pain. That is, not only has life been a misfortune, but because fortune is random, there's no reason to think that it couldn't have been otherwise. And this is the ultimate torment. Before I conclude, I'd like to draw your attention to the first sentence of the sestet, but not so. Not only is this semantically and rhythmically dramatic, but it makes use of a very rare foot called a bakik, a foot which is like a spondy, but with a weak syllable at the front. Bum, bum, bum. But not so. We are justified in reading the foot this way because it terminates not merely in a comma, but a period, and thereby separates itself from the rest of the line. Finally, I'd like to briefly share with you another poem by one of my favorite contemporary poets, Bill Coyle. This poem, Perspectives, functions as a commentary on the Hardy poem we've been discussing. It goes like this. Perspectives. Hardy, in his great poem Hap, maintains he would be comforted to find his pains were not what they in fact appear to be, 
expected outcomes of crash casualty, but the fulfillment of some higher will intent on doing Thomas Hardy ill. Aeneas, faced with overwhelming odds, saw in a vision how the very gods whom he had served now helped his foes destroy the walls and towers and palaces of Troy. There is in Virgil, though, no evidence this vision comforted the Trojan prince. Something interesting to think about. The very situation Hardy imagines, that gods toy with mankind, is something that many Greeks and Romans actually believed. Could this have been a coping mechanism? Or, as Coyle maintains, is this actually cold comfort? With all that we have learned and explored, let us encounter Hardy's poem one last time, as an old friend. Hap If but some vengeful god would call to me from up the sky and laugh, Thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profiting. Then would I bear it, clench myself, and die, steeled by the sense of ire unmerited, half eased in that a powerfuller than I had willed and meted me the tears I shed. But not so. How arrives it joy lies slain, and why unblooms the best hope ever sown? Crass casualty obstructs the sun and rain, and dicing time for gladness casts a moan. These purblind doomsters had as readily strown blisses about my pilgrimage as pain. Thank you so much for listening, and for letting me put a little verse in your universe. If you liked this episode, please consider rating the show or leaving me a review on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have friends who love poetry, or even better, friends who don't get poetry but wish they did, please let them know about the show. Thanks again, and until next time.